Welcome to MediaPath. I'm Louise Palanker. And I'm Fritz Coleman. If you have just finished a series or a movie or a book that you really loved and you've made time in your busy schedule for this podcast, you are a wise and intelligent strategist. We've got some wonderful ideas for you, including a couple of books titled Chiseled and Libertas by our guest, Danuta Pfeiffer. She's coming up in a few moments, but first, Fritz. What have you been watching this week? Well, I have week? a great new series. What hooked? I was hooked on this series before it became a series. I was hooked on the magazine article because it was so fascinating. This is on Netflix. It's called Inventing Anna. It's a nine-part series written and produced by Shonda Rhimes, who brought us Grey's Anatomy and Private Practice and Scandal. So, you know, it's pulpy and it's fun. And it's based on a true story. A journalist investigates the case of Anna Sorokin, a.k.a. Anna Delvey, who is a woman who pretends to be a German heiress living in a massive trust fund who rubs shoulders with the elite of New York and bilks a lot of them out of a lot of money. It was based on a New York Magazine uh, uh, feature article entitled How Anna Delvey Tricked New York's Party People. The journalist is named Vivian Kent in the film based on the real-life writer Jessica Pressler. Anna was arrested in 2017 after leaving a trail of debts around New York City. She'd become a social media sensation because she posted all of her exploits on Instagram, so people knew who she was before she became anybody. The series is written from the point of view of the journalist, Vivian Kent, whose drive to make this article work was based on the fact that she had written a piece earlier in her career that was found to be factually inaccurate. So this woman was driven to make this New York article work looking for career redemption. She was also very astute in sensing that Anna Delvey's goal in allowing herself to be written about was just to be famous. Anna's played by Julia Gardner, who is known for her role on Ozark. Many people love that. I've never seen it. Vivian Kent is played by Anna Schlumsky, who began as a child star and then later played in two My Girl films with Dan Aykroyd and the fourth season of AMC's Halt and Catch Fire. It's a fun series. It, it kind of has the same vibe, Wheezy, as Six Degrees of Separation with Will Smith, where it was very cool to watch Manhattan upper crust people get totally duped by somebody who comes from another... Wait, so let me back up just the train for a moment. Uh, She is Macaulay Culkin's first kiss? (laughs) Oh, is that right? Oh my God, that's so cool. Okay, so yeah, I mean, she somehow this individual learns to speak fluent rich lady. And, she, and and that vocabulary is very dense. You have yeah. to understand brands and art and food. How does a person go about studying that online and then walking through the world as if you've spoken this language your entire she life? She doesn't have to study it because she has a photographic memory. Okay. And they refer to that throughout the first three or four episodes uh, frequently, where she can look at somebody's biography and in 15 seconds have it completely memorized. And so she probably sees all these ads and is exposed to all these brands like in Bergdorf Goodman and Bloomingdale's and just has it all in her Rolodex of her mind and can throw these things out when confronted uh, about it with people that really knows what they're talking about. So. And then she, had, she, she has the sort of confidence or the arrogance or... Uh, the brazenness to sort of walk through the world as if she doesn't need you, no, which draws people She's a complete towards, sociopath. Right. But I think it's that effect is designed to pull people in. Like she knows exactly what she's doing. She's, you know, kind of deliberate about it. And rather than using her giant brain for good, I think she really gets off on tricking people. Like that's powerful for her. It's a game. And she's a sociopath, and so there's no empathy. It's all about her, everything. So Wait, my favorite part of the whole piece, Fritz, is the sort of only murders contingent of, uh, let's call them seasoned journalists who are helping our lead character crack the case in the newsroom. Oh, yeah. They've been relegated to the, yeah, you know. they're the corner. They're the dry, the washed yeah. up people. They're like the uh, washed up Greek chorus over in the corner. Right, but they are getting it done. Yeah. It's, it's really fun. I'm yeah. enjoying it. Yeah, it's great. Show. great show. Okay, so I watched on Disney uh, a piece called The Rescue. It's a documentary. And I just want to make this observation about it. Humans are a fascinating species. We can spend billions waging war, creating weapons, and wreaking death, chaos, and destruction, 
And we can erect a multinational city in a backyard in the service of pulling a baby out of a well. The rescue chronicles a mesmerizing saga that transfixed the world in 2018. The daring rescue of a coach and 12 boys trapped deep inside a flooded cave in Thailand. The heart-pounding story is told through the use of never-before-in-seed footage and exclusive interviews with key players, including Royal Thai Navy SEALs and U.S. Air Force Special Tactics team members. But it's the handful of unique and quirky guys drawn to the hidden sports subgenre of cave diving who emerge as the heroes of the piece. With the world watching and 13 lives on the line, this plucky team of hand-picked enthusiasts masterminded a perilous plan which included drugging and scuba masking the kids to swim them out one by one. Yes, we know how the story heroically ends, but this film takes you inside the rescue step by step and celebrates the astounding courage and compassion of the rescuers and the shared humanity of the international community that united to save the boys. The rescue is on Disney+. Plus. Yeah, it was a huge international story. So big, in fact, that our station, a local TV station, spent a, sent a correspondent over there to Thailand to cover it when it happened. It was huge. Oh, there was a whole village. Yeah, it was. And it's just, I highly recommend yep. this. It was gripping. Amazing. Would you, I think we should introduce our guest. Let's get Miss Danuta in here. Danuta Pfeiffer is a progressive journalist best known for her work in San Diego radio and television. And as her award-winning memoir, Chiseled, a memoir of identity, duplicity, and divine wine explains her behind-the-scenes experience as co-host of the 700 Club with Pat Robertson during his run for president. I would place Danuta's book chiseled alongside The Glass Castle, Educated, and Angela's Ashes in a class of books by authors who have triumphed over nearly impossible childhoods. Danuta graduated from the University of Colorado with a B.A. in communications and journalism and a minor in philosophy, which led her down a pathway of spiritual exploration directly into a position as the best-known woman in evangelical Christianity. Today, Danuta is a community activist, the author of four books, a motivational speaker, and a long-distance bicycle rider. Danuta and her husband, Robin, can often be found tending to their 70-acre vineyard, making fine wine, and sharing it with friends in their tasting room at Pfeiffer Winery in Oregon. Welcome, Danuta Pfeiffer. Thank you very much. So let me start by saying that you have a unique and beautiful gift with language. Your writing is magnificent, and listeners should press pause on this podcast and download Chiseled and Libertas right now. Welcome back. You chose <laughs> you chose the word chiseled as the title of your memoir. It has more than one personal meaning for you. Can you tell us about that? Well, chiseled has, um, yes, it does have multiple meanings. My father was a sculptor. And he would he would he would sculpt these amazing, beautiful uh, uh, statues, uh, bigger than life, literally larger than life, and it, they were for cathedrals and for and for churches and altars and that sort of thing. And um, so chiseled, uh, the book started as his story, and um, so chiseled at first became that which you carve out of stone or wood or ice, something that emerges. Chiseled also means to trick uh, or to steal. And um, there is there is that theft in there, a theft of identity. And so um, so it did it. The book ended up having two different meanings. You know, I, I found one of the one of the fascinating ironies of your father, who is sort of the through line in your whole life's journey. Uh, was that your father was a magnificent sculptor of great religious themes. I mean, he would do Christ on the cross and all these things that were commissioned by cathedrals, and he was very famous the world over for these, yet he was very non-religious himself. Religion was not part of his life. It was so fascinating to me. What was the appeal of religious themes to your dad, uh, other than maybe his youth well it's his background as uh, in poland uh christianity everybody was a christian uh in his little village um and and a catholic uh christian mm -hmm. so he was raised a catholic uh he he the, the church was the center of the village um and so that was that was his religion it was it was assumed that you would be born a Catholic and you would die a Catholic. When he married my mother, my mom had to become a Catholic in order for 
them to be married. But interestingly enough, he um, he was not as uh, religious, did not attend church as often. And it was my mother, really, who pulled us through that Catholic system for years. Your book opens on the harrowing scene of you and your mother escaping your violent father with two small children by means of a car. You have been commissioned to drive to Alaska. Talk about the events that led to a winter road trip to Alaska being less dangerous than your father. <laughs> That's a great question. <laughs> well, in, in, uh, in 1966, uh, there was no Internet. Um, surprise, surprise. There was no way to know that we were heading into the worst uh, uh, winter storm of the century. So here we were in um, fe late February, early March. Uh, we were in a car that had no snow tires and, uh, and a faulty heater. And we were destined to drive 4,000 miles from northern Michigan through parts of northern uh, Minnesota up into Canada along the Trans-Canadian Highway and then up through 1,500 miles of the Alaskan-Canadian Highway um, through tundra over the Rocky Mountains. Uh, this, is a, this was when the uh, Alcan, as we uh, affectionately call it, was only 24 years old. So the, the Alcan had been built by soldiers during World War II, thinking that the Japanese were going to invade. And so they wanted some passage through to Alaska. So they had they chopped trees down and made a road. Um, and so it was corduroy. So when you went over these roads in the summertime, if you went over the roads, it was boom, 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 boom. And, uh, but in the wintertime, the snow had packed it down. But the problem was that the bridges were also rudimentary and made out of um, just logs. And so we had to go over these treacherous, um, uh, more than treacherous bridges and, uh, and around mountain passes that had no, there were no signs, there were no gas stations, there were no lodges, there was no pavement, there, and there were no people. There were some bear caches so that if a traveler along the Alcan came into any trouble, you remembered how many miles ago you passed a little hut that was built on a pole or in a tree that you could actually find a little, some provisions to uh, run away from bears. Um, Whoa. No. It was, uh, it was, sometimes the fog was so dense that uh, I remember at one point we were following a truck. It was a big truck. Um, and, and we, and so we were following its, its taillights for, for hours and hours and hours because we figured that that truck and that trucker might know where to go. Um, at another time in a, in, a, in a terrible blizzard, an awful, I mean, it was just complete whiteout. We lost the road completely and we didn't, and we were in the mountains. So we didn't know uh, whether we were going to be falling off the mountain or, or where exactly the road was. Um, the problem, why didn't you stop? Well, you don't stop when it's 40 and 50 and 60 degrees below zero, um, because then the car would stall and um, then we'd really be stuck. So um, my mother uh, was this little determined little nurse, English nurse, and by gosh, she, she had the spine of Churchill. <laughs> and she, she, just, she just drove that car and she never looked back and she just kept looking forward and and steered us uh, to Anchorage. Um, many times, one time we went under a glacier. We didn't know it was a glacier and we didn't know that it was about to blow. Um, apparently there was a waterfall that had frozen over the road and we were under it. And when we got to this tavern, um, there were a lot of, uh, it was one of the few places where there were people. These were these were hunters and fur trappers that lived out in the wild and they were in there having some beer and and the bartender said to us, where'd you come from? And my mother said, well, 
the road. And he says, well, that's impossible. That that road's been closed for weeks because the, the glacier's gonna break and blow any time. And he says, he said, you, you came, you came through it. You came under the glacier. Uh, we had no idea that we were in a glacier, except it was, it was like being in a bottle of Seven Up. Everything, all the bubbles were frozen, oh. and it was blue and green, and you could hear gurgling water somewhere, and it was some kind of tunnel that we were skidding through. It was. Um, quite the journey. I, I, I want to make two <laughs> points. The first point is we have to tell people the reason for your 4,000 mile hideous journey was that your father was very verbally and physically abusive to everybody in the family, but in particular you because you became pregnant as a teenager and he rejected yes. you and the child. And I mean, he rejected you in the most vile ways. And so it was, it was important for you and the family to escape. And then the escape, and you're beautifully written, that whole passage, the whole first third of your book, where you describe this journey really shows your talent as a writer. The metaphors are unbelievable, and you're on your edge of your seat. But what, what I came away with is your mom truly is one of the heroes of your life because she was the only one who was there for you and her bravery and as you say her fortitude coming through these harrowing experiences that could have killed you was really amazing and then the 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 very sort of melancholy position she takes up in the end of your book when she has a little dementia and she's living in the barn i just found her to be a very sympathetic and a wonderful character and i'm, I'm sure she was as important to you as she seemed in your writing. Absolutely. She 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 was my hero. She saved my life. She saved the life of our family. Uh, she and because she was a nurse, she could she could work. Uh, so when we made when we finally made it to Anchorage, she was able to get a job at a local hospital. Um, she she never she never gave up. She was she was something. And, and I think one of the reasons why she could do that was because she had the ability to uh, only look forward. Um, she kept telling me over and over, don't look back. Don't we, we there's nothing we can do about the past. Just just keep going forward. Just keep looking forward. That's all we can do. And um, it really did in me a sense of resiliency um so that so that i understood that you can't hold on to the past you can't hold on to grievances you can't hold on to errors mistakes miscalculations misjudgments um, um you, you can't hold on to resentment all of that has to go away or else you cannot fill up with the things that are coming into you for the future. Oh, I love that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you have to let it go so that you have room room to grow and learn mm -hmm. and improve. Um, you know, you believing in your father's core greatness, you found yourself drawn to men like him with flaws which eclipsed the good, but you learned from each of them. You were able to learn from all of those relationships. Yes, I did. Uh, I... There was some part of me that was so naive. Of course, I was young, um, so who isn't naive? But there, there were. I was always looking for a, a father figure, really, somebody to say, you know, um, it's okay, you're okay, you're going to be all right, um, you are loved. Uh, that um, that was. It's too bad that I I felt that need at the time, but I. I also was brimming with something else inside of me that just grew into a, um, a, a staunch advocate of, of my own two feet. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I learned that I could own, well, I learned I couldn't rescue anybody else except myself because my, my first husband was also an alcoholic and, and a, and a, and a, really desperate one and um it was hard to he was all the time um having these bouts of depression that would then uh go into suicide threats and i lived with that constantly not knowing whether he was dead or alive from day to day or week to week sometimes and um and i get i kept trying to save him i kept trying to help him i, I kept uh, i became some kind of um uh, I felt responsible for him until finally I realized I couldn't. I, you cannot be responsible for somebody else. 
uh, there was a point where I had to say, if I continue down this road, I will die. And I had to, I had to be able to pull back from the cliff. And I learned that I could do that. I learned that I was strong enough to say no, no more enough. And um, so I went on a 2000 mile bicycle ride and, and that sort of helped. Yeah, it's like you were saying, it's not that I'm afraid of work. It's not that I am afraid of a, a journey. It just has to be one that I, I, I'm, it's possible to complete. Um, well, that bicycle ride did it for me in, a, in so many different ways. I, um, I, I traveled from um, Canada to Mexico uh, with a girlfriend. I wasn't in a big group and we, we didn't have sag wagons helping us and cooking our food for us. We carried everything on our bicycles, um, tents, cooking apparatus, uh, uh, a little pillow <laughs> and, uh, and, and really strong legs. And, um, but it was on that bicycle ride that I learned just how strong I really was right. physically, emotionally, and mentally and spiritually. Yeah. You know, the first two thirds of your life um, with the relationship Wheezy talked about and w that you talked about with Will and with Kai, your alcoholic husband, you were, and, and this is probably the pattern established with your father, and we always seek out the familiar, even if it's negative in our lives. Mm -hmm. you, you loved men that were incapable of returning that love. And you had relationships that were sort of based on abandonment. So by the time you met Robin, the whole passage of going out in the boat and you said, wow, and after all this woman has suffered, she found this miracle of a relationship. It really, it really, I really rooted for your current marriage. When I got to that point in the book, it was really amazing. And what was so cool was how he knew her instantly. Yeah. Yeah, and oh, that's it was what wonderful. you were. He yeah. was very intuitive about who you were before yes. you even had a chance to explain it, it to him. It was it was the it was so magical. Um, that was uh, twenty seven years ago, wow. and we are still as much in love now as we were in the on that first hour on that little boat trip. <laughs> um, uh, it's it, it's been a wonderful life, and yes, it it really. Um, sometimes I have to I have to pause and I. I look back and I say, what did I do right to, to, to get, to get to this point in my life that where everything came together. Everything well, you did the has... work and you suffered and you rode 2000 miles on a bike and you did your work from the inside out and presented yourself in the best possible light to this opportunity, which was Robin. So it was all meant to be. It was kind of cool. I was really going, yes, at the end of the movie. I think, <laughs> I think you know, you're, you're a seeker and, and you're not afraid to ask difficult questions. You're not afraid to hunt for the answers. And you enter the world of televangelism with trepidation, but you were able to hold on to your core values and push back a little within the world of hypocrisies you were experiencing. And you describe it so brilliantly in, in your book. Can you, can you talk about that a little bit? Well, I became a television evangelist quite by accident. I wasn't supposed to be a television evangelist. I was supposed to be a, a news bureau chief in Jerusalem. That's what I was initially hired for mm -hmm. and when i sat in for the co-host on the 700 club for three days um, instead of getting my ticket to jerusalem i ended up being told through a memo that i was the new co-host of the 700 club <clears throat> this was uh this was quite the challenge because i still hadn't learned the, the words to amazing grace yet <laughs> and they were and i was now being asked to lay hands on people, heal people. I was asked to, to preach in, in huge, huge churches. And I was flown all over the country to, to uh, bring love and warmth and Jesus to, to all these people who watched the 700 club and, and spent money and, and all, and it was, it was uh, the celebrity of it was absolutely astonishing to me. Um, and the more I said, please don't come to me. I'm just a person on television. You accepted Jesus in your life because he was supposed to be the one you go to. Right. He's the intercessor. He's your savior, mm -hmm. not Danuta, mm -hmm. not Pat Robertson. And yet the more, the more I said no, the more they wanted me. 
the more they lined up for hours after a speaking engagement, wanting me to pray for their cancer or their sick spouse or their, um, uh, you name it, um, everything from falling toenails to life and death situations. And I think the most, I, I, about that exact topic, I think one of the most powerful moments in the book, and this seems to be a tipping point for you in deciding that this was not the life for you because you weren't being honest with the people or yourself, was when you were doing that speaking engagement and a woman rushed up to you and asked you to bless two vials of her oil, uh, Mm. whatever it was, and you Mm. asked her, why do you want me to bless your oil? And the woman said, because you're on TV. And I thought, wow, that explains the entire Trump phenomenon in one sentence. Why? What gives you credibility? Because you were on TV. I thought it was well. Well, to to the evangelical conservative uh, Christian, uh, the Lord put you there. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's all you. That's all you had to know was if you're there, you and you're a believer, you must be there because you were put there. That the Lord did it. So you're evidence and of God on earth. And therefore, you are uh, you carry that burden. Um, that's that's what that's what Jesus wants. That's why you're there. Okay. Um, and uh, period. There's no yeah, but after that. Um, so anytime anything happened on the 700 Club, even to the point where I was trying to leave several times, I was told uh, that um, the Lord put me here for a reason. Therefore, I can't go. Mm-hmm. And who was I to say that um, uh, I wasn't serving some greater purpose? Mm-hmm. So it was it was a trap that I found myself in. Wow. Now, do you believe that the implosion of televangelism has led in some ways to the worlds of Fox News and QAnon, where folks just long for the comfort of answers rather than facing the, the confusion of questions? People have always wanted other people to give them answers. Mm-hmm. People don't want to think things through. Most people are happy and content with just being given simple answers, little sound bites to uh, to solve some of the world's greatest complex problems, including their own. Mm-hmm. And um, but when it comes to religion, it's even more severe uh, because we've been taught to listen to the rabbis, listen to the priests, listen to the popes, listen to the listen to the celebrity man on TV. He has answers and all those answers make us feel nice and warm and safe. And now if you just send in a hundred dollars a month, you will even be safer mm-hmm. because God knows that you, you sent us that check. And you're going to be blessed for that in so many ways. And you may be you may be poor and you may be suffering, but there's a better place waiting for you. Now, don't forget you don't forget to write that check. <laughs> yeah. And so 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 the suffering was there was a promise. There was always this promise that this that the suffering made sense mm-hmm. um, <laughs> in more ways than one um, <laughs> dollars and cents. Uh, in dollars and cents, yes. Uh, so, so there, there were answers for sufferers for suffering, um, and people needed those answers. And it's not just the people today. I mean, if you read the Bible, Jesus Himself said, "You know, my people are sheep. Uh, that you know, they needed, they needed people, they needed kings, they needed answers, they needed saviors." Um, what they, what people don't understand, I think, and this is what Joseph Campbell does so well um, that he was the great mythologist. Uh, He said, it's all inside of us. Mm -hmm. It's always been inside of us. But it's scary to go inside, isn't it? The the, heaven and hell and God and, 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 and they're all inside of us. We are the beginning and the end. We are part of the great, the great one thing out there. And, and we, we get so caught up on the myth and the story that we forget that it is a metaphor. These are all metaphors for trying to understand our place on this earth. I think it's really scary to go inside and even scarier for people that have suffered a childhood trauma because they feel guilty about whatever may have gone on. 
And they, they, so they just resist going there because it's terrifying. And religion is a human construct and it, you know, we've created it to soothe us. And, and, and so we create these um, leaders, mm-hmm. whether it's a Trump or it's a TV personality who interprets uh, our religious needs for us. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we go there. We feel that it is, as you say, Louise, it's terrifying to face yourself sometimes. Um, but once you've done that, you realize that you're much stronger than your fear. Oh, wow. You know, even though you co-hosted the show, 700 Club, with Pat Robertson, I don't put you on the same plane with Pat Robertson, and here's why. Since the time you were in college, you were a seeker. You were a spiritual seeker. You read Kierkegaard and Kant, and you were really trying to find answers, which is how you came to your being born again. I think it was an honest quest for understanding the meaning of the universe. So I think you came about your spirituality in a very honest way. What I got out of your book and what I've read about Pat Robertson and every other TV evangelist is that there's just a dark marketing genius. Pat Robertson, if he did anything, he just understood his demographics, he understood his audience, and he was just this evil marketer and manipulator of human beings about how he didn't want any ugly people on TV and he didn't want any people over a certain age on TV. Even if he were healing one of their infirmities, he didn't want them on TV because they weren't attractive enough. It was so disturbing to me but i thought your 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 position came up came about in a much more pure and honest way and i i i have disdain Uh, i'll I'll tell you my one personal story about a tv evangelist my ex-wife's grandmother was on social security and couldn't afford to live anywhere except in their home and every month she would send 50% of her social security check to Dr. Schuler at the Crystal Cathedral. And every time she came out to California, we had to make a pilgrimage down to Garden Grove and look at this god-awful structure in Garden Grove. And we would say respectfully, Nana, you cannot give 50% of your social security to this man because... He's driving in limousines, and you're you're buying Windex for the Crystal Cathedral. That's all you're doing. But uh, then I I got to the point, and you may have an opinion about this, that if if it made her happy, who am I to judge that activity? But she certainly couldn't afford fifty percent of her Social Security. Those are there are millions of stories I'm sure, like that. I'm sure. um, uh, but I I have to just reel back a little bit and 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 say about Pat Robertson. Um, I, I, I don't know if the word evil, I, I, I don't think I would use that word personally, um, because I, I really do think that Pat believed in, in what he was preaching. Pat, I, I don't think he was a hypocrite. Pat really followed his path and he really believed in what he uh, was espousing. Um, but I think that somewhere along the line, the power mm-hmm. of his presence on television, I mean, the 700 Club was on every continent and in every country in the world three or four times a day. Mm-hmm. More mm-hmm. people watched the 700 Club than read the New York Times, Los Angeles Times, mm-hmm. Time Magazine, USA Today, and the Wall Street Journal combined every day. Wow. And that's an incredible amount of power. And that's an incredible amount of money. Mm-hmm. And eventually that corrupted, mm-hmm. uh, that corrupted the whole purpose of saying, you know, uh, uh, Jesus is here to relieve you of suffering, to give you some hope in the world, uh, to give some kindness, to show mercy. That message sort of went to the wayside. And um, I just thought I, his reaction to people was very non-Christian. I thought this certainly doesn't sound like a Christian. Well, don't you think that power reveals? Yes, it was. A, it was. It became an ego. It became a, a, 
Pat Robertson, the 700 club, that was the ego and the ego took over. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I, so, so it did become, it did become corrupted. And because of that, I, I'm no longer a Christian. I do not count myself as a Christian. Um, people will say to me, where do you worship now? Well, I go outside. I'm in the vineyard. I'm in the greatest cathedral of all. It's mm-hmm. called nature. Mm-hmm. And there I connect. Um, I can breathe. Uh, I, But I, I do not need to be inside a man-made building to find that great God that people are always looking for. I can find my connection in the great wilderness in in within trees and mountains and oceans it's right in front of us it's right there how have um, how have the folks who watched the 700 club responded to your book and to your stepping away from calling yourself a christian well at first there was a it was shock um people some some people just couldn't believe it other people tried to save me again okay uh, <laughs> i would have visitors coming to say you know denuda you know jesus wants you back and um and some people once they read the book though i, I think i explained it in such a way that the question as to why i'm no longer on the 700 club what happened to me there i think it's it's it was explanation enough, and I don't think I got a lot of backlash um, for it. And I still do have friends that um, are uh, uh, communicate with me from those days. And that's a ladybug right there. Oh, that's cool. That's cool. He walked right across the lens. Heard us talking about nature and walked <laughs> wow, right across. Wow, I love that. Well, I, I've got to tell you, uh, I think that you you showed this bravery that you got from your mother in your ability to step away from that recognition and power. You're talking about Pat Robertson's power. The purity of your soul was that you were able to step away from it. I mean, you gave up a fairly powerful position as a woman of prominence, not only in the Christian world, but in broadcasting and being noted all around the world. That that took a lot of bravery to realize that about yourself and step away and change your life because you gave up a lot to do that. And and did it publicly. Yeah. It's one thing to do it if you're if you're a private person. But when you do it in front of millions and millions of people, it uh, it does take its toll. And so I I two years beating myself up, uh, trying to find the Lord again, trying to reconnect with that whole system. And and the more I tried, the more pain it brought me. And so I really found that I had to let it all go and start over in that search and and realize that, you know, there there is something out there. I am part of a great pulse in in even in trees and rocks. I mean, if you go down into the molecular energy of anything we all are pulsing the same way. There's the same molecular pulse to everything. And I love knowing that I'm part of that. Mm-hmm. And I'm That's what all the, fa- the founding fathers of the United States were deists, and they all espoused the same philosophy you did, that God is in all of nature, and that's where mm-hmm. we should find it. It wasn't about Christianity. It was about where we find God. All those guys, Jefferson and Washington, they all believed that. Well, there's a word for it. It, it comes way back. Uh, I mean, even in the Romans and the Greeks, uh, uh, Aristotle, all, there's, a, there's a, a label for this, if you'll excuse me using a label, but it's called panpsychism, in which pan, everything, psych being consciousness. So that consciousness is in all things. I mean, every day you you read, I can't eat crab or lobster now, and God forbid I eat an octopus, because, <laughs> you know, now you're, re, you're, you're learning that these creatures all have consciousness. Mm-hmm. They all think, they love, they embrace, they um, feel pain. Um, and every day you turn around and you find that trees talk to each other. Uh, there's, there's this wonderful... Um, complex of life that connects all and and that is panpsychism the the idea that all things 
have consciousness and share consciousness. Wow, that's powerful. Uh, you know, when when you were at the 700 Club, you had this light, but it was being chiseled in a certain type of way that wasn't authentically you. And not, you found your, your true light as, as a writer. I mean, you are many, many things, but you are you are a writer. That is, that is very, very abundantly clear. Now, it was your tenacity to continue questioning that brought you face to face with a harrowing truth. Without revealing too much, you dropped breadcrumbs for the reader and your husband Robin knew before you did and he was there to brace your fall. Do you want, how much do you want to talk about that or when you do interviews, how much do you reveal about what happens at, in the later portions of your book? Well, just let me say that when I started writing Chiseled, uh, I thought it was about my father. But as I, it took 25 years to write this book Whoa. because the ending kept changing. Okay. I always thought it was about him. And the, and the longer it took to write, the more I became involved in the story until at the, in, in the last third of the book, uh, things were revealed that I, I had no idea of. I, I was living. Um, I was living on one reality, and my father was living on another. And and so, it, the ending, as in all life, uh, endings do keep changing. You think, okay, this is who I am. Ah, that, no, this is who I am now. No, 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 no. I'm I'm this over here now. And so, um, as I was writing the book. I changed, my reality kept changing, and my story kept changing. And in this particular memoir, the ending, well, we haven't ended yet, have we? But no. but uh, we, we're seeing that sometimes the things you believe in, um, even if it's a myth. Now, I love this part of, of, of the story because it does tie into the whole Christian circle. <clears throat> you can believe in a myth. Because the myth in itself, the belief in it, is enough to make you strong. You don't have to, uh, the myth doesn't have to be true. It's your your belief in it that has to be strong. That's so interesting. You, mm -hmm. you can believe that, um, you can believe that there's a tree in the forest, and if you find that one tree and touch it, that whatever is in your life, if it's arthritis or cancer or misery or just, but if you could just crawl on your hands and knees to a certain tree in the forest and touch it, you will be healed. By golly, you know what? That's true. It's true it's because you mind. have made yeah. it so. Mm -hmm. The tree has no power at all, but it's, it's what you believe that has given you power. Faith. And so I believed in a myth, the myth of my father. And that myth made me feel strong. When the myth, uh, when it turned out to be a myth, um, it didn't mean that I turned weak. No, because I, was, I think you had I strengthened was, yourself to the point where by the time you learned that truth, you were so much stronger. Do you ever think about what would have happened to you if you had learned that truth sooner, earlier in your life, before you had met Robin? You weren't ready. I could have collapsed. Yeah, you weren't ready. I might have collapsed. I, I, I mean, I, I don't know what I would have done, but I, I love the idea of finding that power within you, even if you have to believe in something that's not true. Yeah. I, I, I thought, uh, we don't want to give away too much at the end of the book, but it's so extremely powerful. It's, it's a great Shakespearean twist in your book because you go along. We must say that your, your father, uh, early in your life, had wanted you to write the story of his life. So you were doing yes. two things. You were sort of fulfilling his dream for you. And I really thought that your quest going to Poland and finding out all this information about your father and writing it down was a way where you could process your own feelings about your father and maybe come to a point of forgiveness of your father and put that correct in your own soul. And then, boom, at the end of the book, it's unbelievable. And we, we, I highly recommend that people read it. It's a, it's a great thing. But as Weezy said, at that point, you had already saved yourself so you would not be destroyed by whatever this third act in your life was. 
Exactly. Um, it really was. Um, it, and, and as you say, Robin, my husband, he he could read he could read the tea leaves long before I yeah. long before I did. I was purposefully going through my life with blinders on, mm-hmm. and um, I didn't see all those tea leaves that Robin did. Um, did yeah, your mom did. ever find out that this was all nonsense? Uh, was she? My mother. Uh, my mother always suspected something was wrong. She always suspected it. Uh, and, and later told me that, but but never revealed that suspicion early on wow. until I got back from Poland. It was sort of like, you know, his wounds had justified his cruelty. And then what does, what did you learn from his siblings and his nieces and nephews and cousins that did justify his cruelty? Did you learn anything? Well, I didn't learn it from them. Okay. I, I just I just learned it in it, life in general. You know, nobody is perfect. Sure. And everybody, everybody suffers something. Everybody has their flaws, and especially the immigrants that came across um, after the war. So many people changed their names. Right. So many people wanted to leave the old world behind. Mm-hmm. Um, so many people just wanted a new beginning. Oh, and God. in and in and in a way that was part of my father's um, attempt to start anew. Mm-hmm. But uh, unfortunately, he brought us along with it to the point of um, of harm and living up to expectations. There was no way we could live up to his expectations, and uh, and so that that was that was difficult. It's like you were part of the myth he was creating, and if you didn't fall in line with whatever myth he was creating, he became enraged. Well, right. Uh, Didn't didn't live up to, yeah, didn't live up to it. I I had great uh, sympathy for you going over and meeting some of these relatives for the first time and then discovering that everything you knew about your own father was false. I, I, I thought, what a sense of embarrassment you must have suffered in the midst of all these relatives. Like... They, you know, what what are they thinking about me that I I know nothing of the reality of of, of my father? Well, they were embarrassed too. Yeah. Uh, everybody was embarrassed. Yeah. We we were all sitting around the table, uh, looking at each other, trying to interpret Polish through English, yeah. uh, <laughs> hand signals, and and waving hankies and and crying, and and everybody is talking at once, and we're all trying to figure out what happened. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was, mystery. it was hard for all of us, but, uh, but today, even just today, I was, I've been in touch with my, with my cousin Cesar who lives in Warsaw. We've been talking about the problem with, with what's going on in yeah, the Ukraine sure. and we keep, we keep in, in close touch. Um, and we, we're, we're closer now than ever before. It, it's really brought this whole new level of, uh, of my ancestry and and given us given me so much more dimension knowing where i come from yeah mm-hmm. i meet so many people who do not know where their grandmother came from yeah. or where their aunts and uncles used to live mm-hmm. or you know what what their own ancestry is and if they did know they haven't pursued it and you're missing so much by not visiting those roots while those people rich yeah uh, and it is so important yeah even if you have to sleep like 27 to a room <laughs> that's right <laughs> now i want to know what inspired Liber- libertas because libertas yeah it's going to be a trilogy uh, word, it's, yeah. it's a latin word for freedom right so what inspired this because you it's so well researched and you once again your writing is just gorgeous and the details that it just it just places you there so tell me what led you on this journey i discovered in a, in conversations with my husband robin about the uh, the history of oregon the racist history of oregon oregon was founded as a utopian white society uh, and it was the only state in the union that had it written into its constitution oh. that in 1859 when oregon became a state that no blacks were allowed in 
And if you were in, you were supposed to leave. Uh, and if you didn't leave, you were going to have life very difficult because you couldn't own land, you couldn't sue anybody, you couldn't work, and um, you were given uh, 50 lashes uh, every six months until you did go. Oh my and if God. You and if you didn't leave, then um, you were you could be put into forced labor until you did go. Interestingly, the, the man who put in that lash law, this is uh, several years before the constitution, it was about 1850, 1845, 1850, these, these um, black exclusion laws uh, were being changed and amended all the time. But the lash law was put in place by Peter Burnett and if that name rings a bell, that was the first governor of California. Whoa. And he, um, they wanted a utopia where uh, they could be free of all the problems that they were facing in the South. So the war was coming on. The Civil War was, was gearing up. There was North-South problems. Slavery was the big question. Free Black men were were trying to find their uh, a, a place to live. The underground was was uh, was moving. There were there were anti-slavery laws, and there were and then there were laws to say, well, even if you were a, a state that that did not believe in slavery, we could still come and get you and bring you back, even if you made it to a free state. Mm -hmm. So. Oregon then was put in a position, the, uh, the, the early legislative assemblies decided that they didn't want any more problems. And so they figured that all those problems were because of the black man. The black man did it. Wow. So in order to uh, sidestep problems in a new territory, let's just make this a white utopia where we don't have to deal with all the problems that that the black or mulatto person will bring into our state so while they were an anti-slavery state it was still um anti-black mm -hmm. um so i have protagonists horace and federica who have who have been seeking freedom left their plantation, escape from the plantation, go to New York, get across the Erie Canal. They make it to Buffalo. From Buffalo, they go down to St. Louis. They make it up the, the Missouri River. They're in Independence, Missouri. They've gotten into a wagon train, and now they're walking 2,000 miles across a graveyard. That's how long the graveyard is during the time of the wagon trains. Mm -hmm. It was a cemetery loaded with dead people. Yeah. Uh, people were dying every 80 yards for 2,000 miles. And it was the toughest damn thing you've ever thought about. It's not a sanitized ideal that we think about when we think about wagon trains moving west. Mm -hmm. It was hard. It was, it was more than hard. It was... Uh, terrifying they had dysentery cholera typhoid they wore masks just to get from one water hole to another trying to outrun the cholera or the typhoid um babies were were falling off the wagons and falling under the wheels men were shooting themselves with their own rifles because they didn't understand how a rifle worked and they would put them in loaded barrel side out in the wagon and at night when they went to unload the wagon they'd pull the gun towards them and the hairline trigger would go off and they'd shoot themselves in the stomach uh, this happened many times just crossing rivers there were dozens and dozens and dozens of rivers that they had to cross and they either had to float the the boxes across the river or uh, the oxen are drowning people are drowning in the rivers uh, the wagons are turning over uh, and spilling out. Um, and then of course you've got the desert and you've got the mountains and you've got the high plains and you've got, you've got hostile uh, Native Americans um, who are, who are, you know, coming down trying to stop, to stop this white wave that was taking all the buffalo. And, um, and these people had such endurance that it, it, it defies imagination. They walked. 
the entire way. Mm -hmm. They're not mm -hmm. sitting in a buckboard, uh, clippity-clopping along. Their oxen are dying. They have to walk. Mm -hmm. Then sometimes they're barefoot because by the time they got to Oregon or California, they were they were impoverished, starving, barefoot. They lost all their possessions. They have what's only on their back and they have no idea what they're going to do next. Yeah, it was. And now make these people runaway slaves. <laughs> and that's the story of Libertas. Are you watching 1893 on Paramount? I 1883. Yeah, I can I never am. remember numbers for a title. It's yeah. But you know, yeah. I'm, I'm loving that series. Yeah. I just love it. Uh, but but there are, I've, I found a couple of, of goofs in I it. I bet you did. Because their wagons are being pulled by horses. Yes. And horses weren't going to make horses it. Horses were not what you need on a, on a wagon train. Horses need to eat. They need to eat grain and grass. And there wasn't always grain and grass. They may be faster, but they're not as, they're not as endurable. So, Sturdy, yeah. so the oxen can eat anything and they're slower, but they're stronger mm -hmm. and they can eat anywhere. Horses, mm, not so much. <laughs> wow. Well, one of the ironies about Oregon is, uh, over time, it evolved into a fairly progressive state, right? Yes, um, parts of uh, parts of Oregon are very progressive. Um, I love I love Oregon. That's where I live. And um, Oregon, well, it's 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 still wild. It's still it's still you know we still have rivers that we we love to uh, that we love to go down and mountains to ski, and we've got this rugged ocean. We don't call our coastline the beach. Yeah, <laughs> we call it the coast okay. because the beach has no respect. You have to call it the coast. Right. <laughs> but um, it's, uh, it's a wonderful place to live, and it does bring out in you the pioneer spirit. Uh, and the people that ended up here, having gone through so much, having, having endured so much, uh, one of the questions that I ask in the second book in the series that I am is, once you've endured all that, what do you have left of you? Who are you now? Because you're not the same person you were when you started back east. Right. You've come through hell. Yeah. Now you've come to a new land, and all you know is endurance. Right. You've had to leave your humanity behind. You can't mourn. You can't weep. You can't cry. Wow. You can't wow. love. You, you can't feel anything, but we have to keep going. Mm -hmm. And they had to they had to leave everything behind um, when they uh, um, uh, if they were dying, sometimes they couldn't even wait for somebody to die. They would they would dig the grave if somebody was dying of uh, cholera. They would dig the grave next to the person who was dying while the wagon train is moving on, leaving somebody back there with the shovel waiting for this person to actually die so they could just roll them into the grave. Oh the wagon train will not stop because you've got time and distance that, that really every minute counts. Mm -hmm. and, and part of the second book that I'm writing is about the Donner Party and uh and and what they had to endure long before they made it to the sierra nevada and got stuck in all that snow right. what they went through trying to take that shortcut getting to the sierra nevada is a story that is absolutely unbelievable what these people did wow wow so i grew up in buffalo new york and I did not know about the Lake Erie tsunami of 1844. Talk about that a little bit. Oh, isn't that wasn't that a fascinating? Uh, yeah, wasn't that fascinating? Yeah, it was. It was. Um, it was in November. It was at night. It happened at midnight. So Buffalo was asleep. Now, what happens during? And it's called the Sayish, which is a tsunami that happens in a freshwater lake. Lake Erie is long and narrow and shallow. <clears throat> And the wind was pulling, the, the wind was coming out of the north, and it was pushing the, the lake to the, a course of days. And about the third day, the wind was really strong. 
But nobody really noticed that the water now had backed up to the point that you, for as far as you could see, it was just one long sandy beach. Mm -hmm. That the water had pulled all the way back to the south end of Lake Erie. Now it's nighttime. And what happened was that the wind changed direction. So instead of plowing out of the north, it suddenly came from the south and pushed all of that water that had been piled up to the south of the lake, pushed it north. And and what happens, what happened then is what happens in a bathtub. Right. The water has no place to go in a bathtub. If you start sloshing around like this, the water goes with it, right? Mm -hmm. And then you have these oscillating waves that collide and explode into these huge, huge waves, 30, 40 feet high, and they're crashing against each other and exploding up. And also at the same time, rolling into the north. So all these steamships that were out in Lake Erie, big ones, passenger ships, fishing boats, they were pulled up and thrown into the city. Wow. And and then this 20-foot wave, 20, 30-foot wave, came crashing into Buffalo while people were still asleep. Nobody knew this was happening yeah. until, until this enormous sayish or Lake Tsunami hit Buffalo. One of the interesting anecdotes on, on this story is that there was a steamship out in the middle of the lake that was that after the storm had survived the Sayish, but now its rudder was broken and it couldn't, and it was full of passengers that had survived. And they, they had a horse on board and they had to put a note on the horse's mane and shove the horse off the boat so that the horse could swim to shore with the note on its mane saying, there's a ship out there with people, come and help us. Wow. And they were burning their furniture for heat oh. because remember, it's November yeah. in Buffalo. Oh <laughs> and you're in the water and, and now there's, you know, they're, so they're burning all their furniture. They're starting to burn the ship, trying to keep warm, waiting for this horse to get that message uh, of, uh, to rescue them. Did it work? Yes, it did. Wow. Wow. All right. So we need to learn from you. What's next? You're, it sounds like you've already written the second book. And when will that be? Published? The second book, um, I'm just now finishing up. I'm, I'm into, I'm editing now, which mm -hmm. is um, taking a little bit of time. But I'm in editing of the second book, which is going to be called Firmitas. Okay. And that is Latin for endurance. Yes. And that is uh, in Firmitas, that is where the Donner Party is also part of the subplot. Um, and, uh, oh, I had to tell you one more little tiny thing about Libertas. Please. One of the things you don't learn in school, Abraham Lincoln almost made it to the Donner Party. He wanted to go to California with them, oh. but Mary wouldn't let him. Oh, my. Oh. Mary Lincoln said, no, Abe, you've got, a, you've got a baby on the way. We've got a four-year-old son, and you're running for Congress. You can't go with the Donners. Abe Lincoln wanted to leave with James Reed and George Donner on that trip. Can you imagine if Abraham Lincoln was with the Donner Party, how it would have changed history? Somebody would have had an Abe sandwich. And it wouldn't <laughs> have been fun for everybody. Anyway, um, I got to tell you, you, you have had a gift for writing since you were very young. Your, your, your memoir was so compelling. And uh, uh, really, edge of your seat. And I, as I'm listening to you tell the story of Libertas, I'm thinking it's like the trip down the Alcan Highway with oxen. It sounds like <laughs> it, it's, it sounds like that trip you made. So, have you ever thought about connecting those two journeys that didn't seem like they were going to end well? Man, oh man. <laughs> Oh, my goodness. I've always loved to write, so I'm bringing in some of that tension, I guess. You really have a, you really have a gift. It really is wonderful. So I encourage everyone to go to Amazon and download these books. They're just wonderful. And I just want to thank you so much for being with us, Danuta. Fritz is going to tell everybody how you can review our show 
for your own health and safety. Well, depending on where you get your uh, podcast, Apple Podcasts, or uh, wherever, we, we would love for you to leave your thoughts about the podcast. You know, we'd love to spread the word about this. The whole world needs to know that we have Danuta quality guests on here that have interesting stories to tell. And the beautiful thing about this podcast is you can start out not even recognizing who we're having as a guest and be completely enamored with them by the time we're finished having a conversation. So find us on the area where you listen to your podcast. Leave us a review so we can spread the word about it to other people. Yes, I highly recommend whatever Fritz just told you to do. We would love for you to join us online on Instagram and Twitter. We are at MediaPathPod and on Facebook, where our show page is Media Path Podcast, and our Facebook group is called Media Path with Fritz and Wheezy Podcast Community. You can find full episodes with all kinds of bonus visual content on our YouTube channel, Media Path Podcast. We would love to know what media you have been enjoying. You can contact us at our social media or email us at mediapathpodcast at gmail.com. We would like to thank our wonderful guest, Danuta Pfeiffer. Our team includes Dina Friedman, Francesco DeManda, John Maddox, Sharon Bellio, Bill Filipiak, Thomas Hubble, Mason Brown, and you. Our theme music is by me and John Maddox. I am Louise Planker, here with Fritz Coleman and Danuta Pfeiffer, and we will see you along the media path. You've, you've read the material, you understand.